Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and today we're going to be looking at Jesus as our Savior. Um, well, kids who are here, how many more days till Christmas? Anybody know? How many, Jonathan? Two. Two. Two more days, exactly. Because today's December 23rd, tomorrow's the 24th, the next day is Christmas. Christmas Eve is tomorrow. So don't you love Christmas? I do. My mom used to get so excited about Christmas, she couldn't sleep the whole night. And she wasn't a kid then. She was the mother. But she did love it. I love Christmas just like her, and I always have. I love the decorations. I love the happy spirit of the season. But sometimes, in all those trappings, as wonderful as they are, we can actually miss what's meaningful about the celebrating. Kind of like my Uncle Lou's 95-year-old mother. This isn't her. This is a uh, representation of her. In her old age, she tended to be kind of negative. And so they were afraid when my cousin Elizabeth was getting married that she would refuse to go to her granddaughter's wedding. So uh, they had a dress specially made for her. The, the, the dressmaker came in and measured her right there, and she got to pick out the color, whatever. And so they had it, and then they kept it at their house because she claimed that somebody would come in and steal it in the nursing home. So Aunt Eleanor assigned a cousin for that day to go in and take care of uh, Miss Rose and make sure that she got her hair done and her nails and all that kind of thing. Now, Steve and I attended the affair. It was a very fancy wedding, one of the fanciest I've ever been to at a uh, Chicago um, hotel, uh, downtown Chicago hotel. Everything about the wedding was spectacular. Amazing food. You just wouldn't believe how the kind of food it was. A live band, fabulous over-the-top flowers. It was fabulous. Wine was flowing. And the bride and groom, as, as our traditional Jewish weddings, were held up in chairs and marched around the room. And we all did the circle dance, some of us a little less gracefully than others, to Hava Nagila. It was a total blast. But Uncle Lou wanted to make sure his mother was doing okay with all the commotion. So he went over to her table to check on her and said she was having a nice time. And she told him, I'm having a nice time. But then she leaned over and she whispered to him, but why the big fuss? You know any of these people? So to apparently to her, it all seemed to be a big deal over nothing. Well, like Miss Rose, we can lose the purpose of our celebration sometimes with the crazy number of things that we have to do, especially the preparation, the baking, the decorating, the parties, family gatherings, shopping, rapping, concert songs on the radio, all of the trappings can actually distract us from the reason that we celebrate. And what we end up with then is a temporary empty high when it all comes down and gets packed away. It's very sad when it's over. So here's the question this morning. How can we take from Christmas a lasting joy? Joy that won't fade once the Christmas tree is taken out to the curb. Well, we've been looking at several aspects of Jesus and his character, whose birth, of course, is what Christmas is all about. We saw him in earlier weeks as priest, prophet, and king. And today, we're going to look at his purpose for coming. He was on a mission, you know, and it wasn't to heal the sick or feed the poor. Jesus came to be our Savior. So let's look at the big announcement that night that Jesus had arrived. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let's pray as we get started. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for that wonderful event, that happening, and the way it was pronounced by the angels in heaven. What a glorious thing, God. So would you please help us, Lord, to concentrate a little bit on you this morning, on the Savior that you are, for the reasons that you came, for who you came to save, and that we may, Lord, know you a little better to increase our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, what was going to happen after Jesus was born? He came to be our Savior. Now, I looked up the word Savior in the Greek lexicon, and the lexicon defines Savior as a deliverer or a preserver. And I found a lot more interesting things because the word Savior is not used that much in the Gospels. Luke uses it twice in his account of Jesus' birth. We just read one of them. And in John, the uh, Gospel of John, the Samaritans who were told about Jesus being the Messiah by the woman at the well, they called him the Savior of the world. That's it, folks, three times in the whole four Gospels. And all the other uses of Savior in the New Testament, and there are many, are in the later writings after Jesus returned to heaven. So what would the word have meant to the shepherds that night as they heard it? Well, I look back to the times that the word Savior is used in the Old Testament Greek Septuagint, which is Old Testament Greek translation of the Old Testament. And um, it was interesting because uh, they, it was used there all the time, or many times, but most of the times the Savior is meant in the context of being a rescuer in times of distress, relief from the threat or op- oppression from physical circumstances. Most of the references are in Isaiah, prophecies of either God himself or a Savior to come that he'll deliver, send to deliver the word, world. One striking statement about the Savior is found in the book of Hosea. It says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. Now, it might surprise you, but that word Savior is used quite a bit in extra-biblical literature, things not found in the Bible. Augustus Caesar, the Roman Empire, the time, emperor at the time of Jesus' birth, was known as a Savior. And as his birthday was being planned, the proconsul of Asia wrote that Providence had created the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus for the benefit of mankind, sending us and those after us a Savior who put an end to war and established all things, exceeded the hopes of all who had anticipated good tidings. So there's, he's being called the Savior by his people, Augustus is. Um, so I wondered why Luke was, again, why was he mentioning him? Of course, it was to talk about the survey, but it really seems, because Luke is really famous for this, but he puts things side by side so that we can compare them. And I really think here he was comparing Augustus, the Savior, to Jesus, the Savior. And so I want to look at that a little bit this morning because it's what they would have known. When they thought of Savior, they would have thought of the, the emperor. Um, and then, and possibly the things that were in the Old Testament, for sure. But, um, so we'll, let's take a look and see how they're a little bit different from each other. Just a little. 
So Luke's point seems to be that there's another ruler that has been born whose dominion is both everlasting and universal, that the angel's good news counters even the exalted claims that were given to Augustus Caesar. So what was different? Well, the name given to Jesus was the Roman Greek translation of the transliteration of the name Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. In Matthew's account, the angel tells Joseph to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So that angel announcement that really gave a new understanding to the word savior. The reign of Augustus, this earthly king, brought in peace in a very physical sense, a temporary sense, in uniting the world under one ruler. But this savior, the heavenly eternal king that the angels were announcing, came to bring peace with God. And his aim was to seek and to save that which was lost. This Savior was going to turn the world upside down. He would usher in a new age which was radically different than the old one. For example, holiness and purity would come from faith in him and not anyone's best intentions or good works. And what people believed about status and values would be turned around. The last would be first. The first would be last. And everything the world thought to be true would be reexamined and questioned with the birth and then teaching of this Savior. Another difference between Caesar and Jesus was the kind of Savior he came to be. It could be seen right away from the beginning of the circumstances of his birth. He came as a helpless baby. He foresha- that foreshadowed his life of complete obedience and dependence on the Father. And those humble surroundings, the manger, the animal stall, all foretold of his life of humility. Huge contrast to the prideful power-grabbing Augustus. But in those very surprising characteristics, the Savior would light up the darkness as the visible manifestation of God in the flesh. I want to show you just a short clip here about people that have been colorblind all of their lives, and they're given these special glasses that they can see color for the first time. Beautiful, isn't it? It reminds me of a a woman that I met while I was teaching at the well, and uh, she told me her story. She was a heroin addict and in really bad shape. She'd been prostituting herself and um, stealing, trying to keep her habit um, going, and she was absolutely miserable and about done with life. And so she started to pray one day, and she prayed, God, you're going to have to change me. You're going to have to rescue me. I am absolutely without hope. And an hour later, the door burst open, and in came a SWAT team. And they arrested her and put her in jail. And now she's sitting in the jail cell and saying, wow, thanks, God. (laughs) But she started thinking about it, and she thought, well, I'm not going to be doing drugs in here. And she started to warm up a little bit to the idea that maybe God really was at work. And she started thinking about it and then began praying again. And then one time during the course of that night that she spent in that cell, this warm gush came over her and she knew that God had changed her completely. Absolutely. And she just, she wasn't really sure what was happening, but she knew something had happened. And as she walked out the next morning, out on bail, She looked around her, and she told me this. She said, the grass was greener 
The sky was bluer. The flowers were beautiful. Everything looked totally different. And I thought about these people with their color blindness, seeing what reality is for the very first time. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, that's what the angels were announcing to the shepherds that night. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David is a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests. Now that last phrase I started thinking about as I meditated on this whole story. Peace to those on whom his favor rests rests. Who were those people that would receive the salvation he was bring? Who were the lost that Jesus was coming to save? Who were those on whom his favor was resting? Well, we can study his, their identities by looking at Jesus in the Gospels, by looking at what he prioritized when he lived his life on earth. One thing that became very apparent right away was shown from the start. The first is, is that Jesus came to save the, whole, the lowly, the forgotten people, the oppressed. Because look who the angels gave the announcement to, the shepherds. Now, people who shepherded for a living back in the first century were definitely thought to be the low people um, on the scale of power and privilege for their day. Their circumstances actually kept them from where they were living, from keeping all of the purity laws and all of those things that the Pharisees said you had to do in order to be holy. So they were looked down upon because of their mean circumstances. That's who God chose to give the announcement. That's who got to see the glory of heaven. That's who got to hear the angel choir singing in the skies lit up with God's glory. Praises to God from Jesus' birth. Well, 30-some years later, Jesus showed people in the synagogue of Nazareth, now that he was a grown-up, that Isaiah's prophecy about saving the oppressed was about him. This is what he said. He read this to the people in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. And he followed through on what he was sent to do. Uh, he spent a lot of his time with what the rest of society thought to be sinners. But Jesus, right from the start, in his Sermon on the Mount, said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. You would think that a king like Jesus would be looking for the brightest and the best, Think back to the, Nazar the uh, story of Daniel back in Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar, who was an earthly king, chose the cream of the crop to serve into his courts and government. But not Jesus. He came to seek the lowly, the forgotten, the oppressed. A huge difference from an earthly king or savior. Well, how else did our heavenly savior differ from the earthly ones? He was seeking those who approached God with a humble heart. Humility was not especially valued in the Roman world, especially to a Roman savior. Strength and power was what was respected. The strong heroes in battle were the ones that were honored, those who acted bravely, like being the first to board an enemy ship or the first to scale an enemy fortress wall. 
or maybe they even look to the strength of accomplishment of great philosophers or political leaders. Seeking those with a humble heart was also radically different from what the then current Israel leadership dictated. They had all sorts of rules made up about how to be godly, and it created a real divide between those who could keep those rules and those who could not. And it actually kept the people uh, that could not keep them apart from God, at least in their eyes. All good works produced in those religious leaders, all they produced was arrogance, if you think about it, because now their salvation was all about them and their accomplishment and how pure and clean they looked on the outside. But Jesus saw right through that holy mask and looked straight into their hearts, and he told them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. You see, the righteous of the day had squeezed God into a box of their own creation. They thought they knew how to be holy and acceptable to God, but their rule following didn't impress God in the least. Paul wrote about it later. He said, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. You know, someone with arrogance believes themselves to be pretty self-sufficient, what we might call the self-made man or woman. But Jesus didn't come to save those who believed they had it all together. He said once, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He would save people who understood just how far from the holy mark that they are. People who in desperation are willing to throw their trust in Jesus for their salvation. People who would approach God in complete humility. You know, understanding one's sinful state was a huge part of John the Baptist's ministry. In order to prepare people for the coming Savior, he made people aware of their sin because you can't accept a Savior when you haven't a clue that you need one. Jesus came to save the lowly. Jesus came to save the humble. And finally, Jesus came not only to save the Jewish people, but the whole world. You know, the Jews felt pretty entitled. They believed that that Messiah was going to be coming for them as did the God-fearing Gentiles, the proselytes, which they were training up. But Jesus would not only save God's chosen people. He had come to save the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him in the world. 1 John 2.2 tells us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So it had been in God's plan from the beginning to draw the whole world to himself. Remember when he was establishing a relationship with the Israelites back in the desert with Moses? He told them that he was going to raise them up to be a kingdom of priests, people who would reveal him to the rest of the world. But they failed in their mission. So Isaiah recorded God now speaking to the Messiah who was to come. He says this, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. He would do what the nation had failed to do because in 2 Peter it tells us that God is not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. 
Jesus was a savior who was going to look past the borders of Israel to the rest of the world, to people he loved just as much as he did his chosen people. He was the savior of all humankind. So this savior was not something the world was expecting. Israel looked for a savior who would bring them the glory they thought they deserved, like any earthly slaver would have done. But Jesus was a savior from heaven. His goal was to save the lost. They, those who understood that they didn't stand a chance with God, his goal was to bring peace with God that the world had never known, not since the Garden of Eden. His purpose was to give his righteousness and holiness to any who would just believe in him. He didn't come only for those who felt entitled. He came for all mankind. So that's our Savior. So what? How should this Savior impact me today? Well, pride from our place in society, accomplishments, a sense of entitlement, which all lead to arrogance, is actually the opposite of what Jesus, our Savior, valued. He valued humility. He valued the lowly and the oppressed because they were the ones who recognized they could never be worthy of God. And putting those things in the rearview mirror is the only way that we can come to God as well. We have to acknowledge that our helplessness is, we are helpless to rescue ourselves and place our trust in our lives for those that want a future in eternity with the Savior. And even after doing that, the humility which established our relationship with God needs to continue on as an ongoing relationship with him. We'll always be completely dependent on him, whether we realize it or not. As James wrote, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. There's a freedom in that, a freedom that comes from realizing that Jesus did it all. A freedom from the guilt of those of future failures, knowing that that sin, even though in the future, is already paid for. It's already been made good. The joy of knowing that we're forever right with God because our righteousness is not of our own doing anyway. It's a righteousness that's given to us, the righteousness of Christ at the moment we believe. So do you want joy this holiday season? Stop thinking about Christmas and all the trappings that go with it and start thinking about Christ. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's the only one of God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Because Christmas isn't about presents. It's about his presence. That he came to earth, leaving glory, power, and splendor behind to live a life in total obedience, obedience that led him to the cross to become the savior of mankind. Well, in closing, I want to tell you a little bit about an office visit my husband had um, at the doctor's. There's a lot of inconveniences to getting older. And one of them is the fact that when you're over 50, yes, that's older. It's getting, it's getting closer all the time for some of you. Don't mock us. But uh, after 50, you start to get to be in a high risk of developing shingles. What happens is the virus that your body attacked and successfully got rid of there are still some lingering viruses that have settled in places in your body that nobody knows where they are. And then suddenly, as you get older, you become way more um, vulnerable to that virus coming back with a vengeance. You develop very, very painful rashes, and it can really be something that can last for the rest of your life, or at least for many, many years, this nerve pain that develops because of it. But there's a vaccine. Knowing that getting shingles was going to mean 
some suffering, Steve asked our doctor several years ago if she would write a prescription for a vaccination for him. And surprisingly enough to my doctor, she said, wait. Why? Well, there was a new vaccination that was about to come out. It's out, by the way. (laughs) The old one was only 50 to 70% effective as compared to 97% effective that the new one offers. And the new one, rather than a few years, will last for 20 to 30 years. So why would someone get the old vaccine when the new one is so much more effective? Well, you probably guessed it then. Steve chose to wait until the new one was being given because settling for something less effective just didn't make sense. He wanted something that would be long-lasting. So I ask you, why would you settle for an empty holiday season when lasting joy is available to you? Go after something that will last. Take the time to remember the arrival of our Savior and what it means, what it meant to the world and what it means for you. As Peter advised his readers, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him, you believe in him. And the result of this, you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Take some time this season to refresh your love for him. Ask him to teach you more about himself in the scriptures. The better we know him, the better we love him. And that love will result in peace and joy that will carry you far beyond the holiday season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to leave the glory of heaven to come to earth to suffer a terrible death on our behalf. We want to remember and appreciate over this next week how your coming changed everything for us. Please refresh us with your presence so that we can love you more. And as we leave, please hear the words of Paul to the Romans. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.